0: So let's stand together for the reading of the word. In Exodus chapter number 14, it says in verse number 3, this is God speaking prophetically. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in, boxed them in. Never felt like that? Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Wow. So, Father, thank you. Your love for us is higher than the heavens. Your mercy and patience has blessed us with amazing favor. Today we will see the enemy defeated in each personal life, that there's victory in each life, that his work will be in full retreat The victory has come through your son, Jesus, to whom we give thanks. And everybody said, amen. 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 Please be seated. That was the before scenario. Now listen to the after scenario. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, God said. My hand shall destroy them. Well, Pharaoh was hell-bent on destroying God's people. I mean, he was hot under the collar, and the next verse tells us the rest of the story. God, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. And just a, a word of caution, we're in a day when uh, producers are making movies to sell to Christian audiences. Exodus will be coming out in just a few days, but just a couple of heads up so you're aware. Um, Based on biblical themes, including the the movie Noah, recent movie Noah, they are not just inaccurate but seem to totally disrespect God's word. And the reasons are, when God opened the Red Sea, I just read it to you, you blew your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead. Uh, This movie is going to predict, or or rather say that, that parting of the Red Sea was because of an earthquake, some natural phenomenon just lucked out and the children of Israel. Three million of them just got to walk across an open seabed, which God, by the way, blew dry so they wouldn't sink in the mud. Kind of interesting. Um, The actor that plays uh, Moses in this movie, I quote him, called Moses Schizophrenic and one of the most barbaric individuals I've ever read about in my life. Eh. So he's going to be portraying Moses. You know, when... uh, the movie Ten Commandments opened decades ago. I mean, it's really old with Charlton Heston. Cecil B. DeMille would appear at the beginning of the movie shown in theaters, and he would make he would give a caveat. And his caveat was that he'd done everything he knew to do to try to stay as close to biblical content as possible. You know, there obviously would be things there that people would see that they said didn't line up properly. But he said, I wanted to respect the Word of God, and depict this story as best I possibly could. And he had to give a tip of hat to that kind of honesty and transparency. The director, on the other hand, of the movie Noah, said that he was making the most unbiblical, biblical story, movie ever in history. So you've got a, a, a huge contrast, and this, this is the story. Not what you're going to go see on the screen. This is the story, Okay. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead into the mighty waters. So there you have the truth of how God did it. This is the God we serve. Now watch in Proverbs 21. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. No one, no human being is going to ever outsmart him. So join me in reading this passage aloud. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord which means God always has the last word. No matter what you're facing or have faced, God always has the last move. And those who play chess know how that game is about thinking long-term. It doesn't always move fast. There are calculated moves. Moves thought out for the purposes of strategy. And chess requires some thought before you make a move. There are pawns, there are bishops and knights, and the king and the queen. And the game of chess... When a move is made to win the game, it's about the king being left unprotected. The objective: surround the king. He cannot go left, he cannot go right, can't go forward or backward. And when the king is unprotected and cannot make a move, the adversary who has hemmed the king in will say a word called checkmate. When the word checkmate is used, it means you're trapped. Game over, blocked there's no way for you to get out of this situation. You're surrounded. There is no escape. Exactly what Pharaoh was plotting. It's called checkmate. We have an adversary who wants to block you, surround you, hem you in, outmaneuver you, stop you, and then yell at you. You're trapped. You're stuck. There's no way out, and you can't run this way, and you can't run the other way. I got you where I want you. I've got good news today. When the enemy of your soul When the adversary screams, I've got you hemmed in, you're trapped, you've got nowhere else to turn, heaven screams back at him in return, I don't think so, I have the last move. So heaven fights on your behalf. In my passages today, you'll see that Satan desires to hem in your life, to set traps for you, to checkmate your life. He desires to render you helpless. He wants to put you in a position where he can scream at you, it's over. There's no way out. What's the use? There's nothing left for you. Jesus put it like this. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he gives a very important order in the statement he makes. Before Satan can kill and destroy, he has to steal. He has to steal your hope, steal your faith, Steal away your dream. He has to steal the promises of God out of your heart. But if God is for me, who can be against me? If there's no counsel, no wisdom, no understanding that can stand against the Lord God, then contemplate this revelation today. When hell hollers at you, I have you now. Yeah. I've got you now. Wow. He said it better than I can. Then you have this response in your spirit I don't think so. So, whenever you hear the enemy speak to you, I have you now, you, know, you might want to wake up your sleepy neighbor next to you. And your response should always be to him when he says, I have you now, I don't think so. Say those words with me I don't think so. Come on, say it with a little attitude. Kind of like you ladies when the man says, I'm going to go buy me a new motorcycle. I don't think so. So so when Satan whispers, I have you now, there's no escape. There's no way out. Your answer, God's going to have the last move. I don't think so. There's no wisdom, power, or counsel against the Lord, including Lucifer. In my text, Pharaoh was facing an uncertain economic future because The slaves that he'd held for 400 years, the empire had held them for 400 years. Listen, they were all exiting the Egyptian empire. Moses is heading and leading them out into the wilderness and comes up against the Red Sea. And Pharaoh is very upset. He knows that all of his pretty much free labor has just left his country. And Moses is out there with 3 million Jews. "'Left side of him, a mountain, right side of him, a mountain, "'in front of him is the sea, "'and behind him is Pharaoh closing in from behind. "'You might call that almost a checkmate. "'The families of Israel would be overrun, slaughtered, "'others captured and returned to Egypt as slaves for the empire. "'There was no hope getting out of this mess.' The children would die in the wilderness being killed or return to Egypt to become slaves like their parents and generations before them. And they're totally surrounded, isolated. There were no moves left on the table. None. Suddenly the enemy shouts, I have you now. And when the enemy says, I have you now, I don't think so. You have to understand God is never out of moves. And there's one thing God can do that we cannot do. And here's what God can do that we can't do. I may have done everything I can do in certain situations, but God has never done everything he can do. Sometimes the doctor says, I've done all I can do. Your banker says, I've done all I can do. The counselor says, I've done all I can do for your family. But we serve a God who says, listen, I have never done all that I can do. God has never done all that he can do. And look at how he's revealed. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, And then God displays his glory. His glory covered the heavens. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand. Then this message conveyed by the prophet, and there was the hiding of his power. With all this majestic display, there was the hiding of his power. Just when you think God has done all he can do, revealed all he can. God has hidden more than he has revealed. He loves you. He cares for you. He's on your side and he has never done exhausting his inexhaustible resources on your behalf. So if he has done all that he can do, then our universe is in big trouble. It's falling apart. But when he speaks, he still retains some of his power. So Moses finds himself standing there with three million Hebrews, they've all been slaves and that's all they've ever known all their lives. There's nowhere to turn. Moses has got trouble speaking. He has a little bit of a, a conversational problem. He's done nothing much for four decades except 10 sheep. I mean, he's got the smell of sheep dung on his sandals. Moses has got nowhere to go and hell shouts, I have you now. God found Moses in that desert facing the Red Sea. And God did what I just read to you. He opened that sea in front of them and blew with his wind to dry out the bed and allowed those three million to go over untouched. God found him in that desert. God found Jeremiah in his pit. God found Joseph in a prison. God found Job on an ash heap. And God can drop a ladder into your pit. God will never give up on you. Even when you feel like giving up on yourself, God will never give up on you. Your job, keep yourself in the love of God. Your job is to keep a good attitude. Not always easy to do. Your job is to build up your spirit. Hold on to the promises that God made. And when the enemy shouts, I have you now, your spirit has to come back with, I don't think so. It's our job as a church. We reach to a woman pregnant without ever having been married. And the enemy shouts at her, I have you now. Your life is over. It's the church's job to say, I don't think so. To the woman who had an abortion, hell says, you're a failure. Just give up. I have you now. God doesn't love you. The church's response should be, listen, I don't think so. To the substance abuser, who struggles for freedom. The enemy says, I have you now. There's a church that's going to shout back, I don't think so. Hell cannot have you. God has made a way of escape because my God has power to deliver. When your marriage is on the rocks and Satan says, just walk away from the marriage. Walk away from your family. Leave your children. I have you now. But heaven shouts back, I don't think so my love is enough, my grace is sufficient, my presence is with you, you can begin again. So your destiny is greater than your difficulty. Your destiny is greater than your disaster. Your destiny is greater than your present dilemma or your catastrophic event. God has his hand on your life. Your destiny depends on who you agree with. You can agree with the enemy, or you can agree with God. In Europe, annually, there's this huge chess tournament. The world's master chess players gather together. The annual event is hosted, and there's always this mural that's displayed, that's painted decades and decades, years and years ago. It's displayed for all the chess players to see. The professional chess players compete, and the mural is usually in the background while the games go on. And when the artist created this painting, he said that the person to your left depicted Satan. He's got a little smirk on his face. He looks like he's an okay guy, but you don't mess with the devil, okay? And on the chessboard, the king is completely surrounded in the mural. The backdrop for the contest is this mural with the king on the chessboard completely surrounded. And during one of the tournaments, one of the chess masters had a break time and he got up and he walked over to the mural and he began to study it. And after looking at it for 25 minutes, intensely, he screamed. He said, no, it's wrong. It's wrong. And everybody stopped their games to look at what is this guy doing? When he had the retention, he said, this is not true. The king has one more move that the painter overlooked. This game is not checkmate because the king has one more move. And I'm here to tell you today that your doctor may not give you any more hope, but your king has one more move. You've been told you've lost everything. You'll never own a home again. You'll never have a happy home, but your king has one more move. You may be troubled in your life like you've never experienced, but the word of the Lord to you today is your king has one more move. And his goal in your life is that you win, not lose. Your king wants you to live. He wants you to move forward. He doesn't want you to die in your dilemma. You recall when the Pharisees in the New Testament caught the woman in adultery and they dragged her in front of Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, trapped. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? They were peeping toms would have been my first response. (laughs) That's at least a misdemeanor, isn't it? It says they caught her in adultery. And that's not the first time these Pharisees did that, by the way. It's pretty habitual if you read some of the epistles. They caught her in adultery. How does her commit adultery? Where is him? In order to trap Jesus, they grabbed this woman and they dragged her in front of Jesus. And the worst thing to do if you want to punish a sinner, throw them at the feet of Jesus. (laughs) If you want to punish a sinner, take them to the Pharisees in today's church. Because there are always a few, right? Take them to the religious group, to the religion-oriented people. Take them to some church members and throw them at their feet. Punishment will be served The worst thing to do, if you want to get judgment up on a sinner, throw them at the feet of Jesus, because the king has one more move. And when the law says you're finished, when you failed and you've messed up, don't ever take a guilty person and throw them at the feet of Jesus. Because the Pharisees told Jesus, the law said, we must stone her to death. But the king had one more move, and he said, I'm the word. And he began to write a new word in the sand, And he says, just when everybody thinks it's over, because you failed, God can't love you, God can't use you, I want you to know the king has one more move. Then Jesus made his move, and he said to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. There's a difference between performance and worth. You can have a poor performance that does not invalidate your worth. God believes you have great worth. God still loves you, and hell will not have you if you'll fall at Jesus' feet. I have you now. I don't think so. My king has one more move, and no one is too far gone that God can't reach you. Job had walked through a crisis. He lost all ten of his children in one day. He lost all of his businesses in one day. He lost his health in one day. This was a broken man. and Everything Job had was gone. But God recorded this for us. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. And I'm hearing God say to you today, there is an after this. After the divorce, after the substance abuse, after the doctor's report, after the crisis, after the bankruptcy, after all is gone, the king has an after this for his people. You're going to have a life after this. You're going to go through this and then you're going to live after this. The king has placed an after this in your life. After you've lost it all. The king still has. an after this, it's a move in a direction that brings you health and strength and recovery for your life. Job lived another 140 years after his most severe trial. If God could let Job live a full life for 140 years after his trial, you can live after your crisis. And God doubled everything the enemy stole from him. You can live after your accident. You can live after your trial. You can live after a divorce. And hell has screamed to some of you today, I have you now. You will never recover. But the king has one more move. He has withheld some of his power for this late hour. And he always has some he has never shown you before. No in Genesis 9 had come through a worldwide flood. Mankind is no more. Only the righteous Noah and his family remained. Every other human is gone. And they exited the ark and life anew began. And after the flood, after years of constructing that ark, about a hundred years in construction, after the evil of mankind his entire lifetime, whose hearts were only evil continuously, the scripture said. And God repented that he made man. After waiting on the ark, in other words, he regretted it. After waiting on the ark for the waters to subside, listen to this. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. Noah had more life after the flood than he did before the flood. And if Noah could live after his flood, God has life for you after your crisis, after your catastrophe, after hell has come against you. The whole world was gone, gone. And Noah lived 350 years beyond. Noah lived on. When Noah built the ark, he was the minority, and people mocked him. Noah's a fool. Noah trusts this God. He's a loser. When Noah exited the ark, he was the majority. When Jesus returns for his bride, we will have left this world in minority. But when we come back with him, we will rule and reign with him in the majority because there's life after the flood. Always life. I think of Jonah. He didn't want to preach the gospel of mercy to the people of Nineveh. mm I don't want to do that. Those people deserve it. Whatever you're going to hit them with, get them. i would you like to have him for a pastor? <laughs> wow. You fly over that part of the world, someone in an Air Force pilot will point out Nineveh to you, and that's Nineveh. That's the place that existed back then. They, they failed after their repentance to continue living right, and God did judge them eventually. Listen, but, but, but Jonah, he knew if he preached mercy to the inhabitants of Nineveh, God would rather give them mercy than judgment, because that's the heart of God. I'd rather give you mercy than judgment. He didn't want to go preach to them because he knew God would forgive them. But God built the first one-man submarine. And the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And God put Jonah in the belly of this great fish. Now, you might think you have some problems today. Hey, you have no problem like being at the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a great fish. okay? Do you have a problem that has swallowed you up and you're in a fish's belly And hell is screaming to you, I have you now. And when Jonah began to cry out to the Lord for mercy from the belly of the fish, God caused the problem that had swallowed him up to spit him out. And if you'll ask God for his mercy, he'll cause the problem, listen, to spit you out and to let you go. I don't care what people say. There is no counsel. There is no power. There is no wisdom that can come against our God. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above. So Calvary, understand, God wants us to win, not to lose. Even when he confronts us and convicts us of our sins, as he did King David. It was for restoration. It is for us as well, for restoration. Why? Because he wants you to win. One day they took Jesus, the Christ. And they hung him on that cross. They had nailed his hands and his feet. The soldiers of Rome surrounded the king. And Jesus hung on that cross. And hell began to mock and laugh and scream. I have you now. It's over. You're done. And from the blood cake lips of Jesus, he he declared, it is finished. The devil thought that meant one thing. Jesus knew exactly what it meant. The plan of salvation has been completed. He gave up his spirit. He laid down his life. They take his body from that cross and they lay it in that tomb. The Romans rolled a stone over the entry and they sealed it. And they placed their elite Roman guard in front of it. Like where is a dead man going to go? He's in the tomb. He's dead. The tomb is sealed. Roman guards are there day and night. And one day goes by. And two days go by. And the third day goes by and Satan says, I have you now. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead because the king had one more move. One more move. And there was triumph that day around that tomb. And there was triumph when he stole Satan had stole from you and me the keys of death and the grave. And on that resurrection morning, Jesus said, uh, "Hand them over. I have you now." <laughs> Both keys are in his hands. And the authority that Lucifer wore across his shoulders was stripped from him, no longer able to bear that authority because Jesus now has all authority in heaven and in earth. If you've made a mess of your life, if the prognosis is bad, if you have fallen and failed, if you're frustrated and bound and addicted, if you feel surrounded and entombed like Jesus with no way out, I'm here today to tell you, if hell is screaming, I have you now. Scream back, I don't think so. And I'm not preaching this truth by accident when your enemy is smirking like in that picture thinking, I've won the game. Remember, the king has one more move. Does anyone here believe that God is still God? That he's still able? That he always has one more move? There's no wisdom, no counsel, no power that can come against our God. Because he always has another move. The enemy says, I have you now king says, "Mm -mm, I have one more move. Well, you don't know what a mess I've made, pastor. Well, you know what I'll do with you? I'll throw you at the feet of Jesus. Because the Ark of the Covenant that Israel carried contained the law of God, the Ten Commandments resided inside that God box. But above the lid of the box was the mercy seat. Because mercy always is above the law. And when the priest would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat, the law neutralized and sins were forgiven. When Jesus sprinkled his blood, the scripture says in Hebrews, on the mercy seat before the throne of his father, sins were forgiven. Anybody here want to jump up and praise the Lord? Come on. Praise the Lord, everybody. Stand to your feet and praise this great God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.